Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, this is the only awkward time when I tell you the date and then what's going to definitely happen <laughs> in the interim, which is that we are recording this on Monday, November 7th. Tomorrow is the midterm elections. This will come out. This episode will come out on Wednesday, November 8th, at which point we'll either be, you know, everyone will be super sad or super happy, depending on, you know, what side of the aisle that you celebrate. But um yeah, I, I don't know why I put it that way as if, you know, it <laughs> felt like very much like a Michael Jordan Republicans wear shoes too thing. We're like, we also have Republican listeners to this podcast, which is <laughs> true. We might have a few. If so, thank you and welcome. But um, yeah, so we are not going to have anything about the midterms and we don't have anything that's going to sound out of out of date by the time that Wednesday rolls around. But we do have a wonderful guest. Tammy, why don't you tell the folks who are wonderful that guest is. Yeah, we're going to talk about fashion this week um, with Minha T. Pham, who is a professor and writer um, at Pratt. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of us, especially in the Discord outfits and style garment channel, have been thinking about companies like Shein and um, all the stuff we're buying online during the pandemic. So it's a really good conversation. Sheehan, yeah. Um, it was, I found the conversation to be totally illuminating. I didn't know anything about any of this, you know? And then Sheehan, I didn't, I didn't even know what it was before I started like reading up for the, for the show today. Like, I, I think that we don't quite get into it very much, like in the show. So as an introduction, like what, what exactly is Sheehan? It's like, uh, you know, like I think we talk about Shein a lot, but we didn't yeah. do this thing where we sort of introduced oh, and told true. people what it actually is. Yeah, so it's a it's a website. It's a Chinese based company that sells super super fast, super super cheap fashion, and the TikTok people love it. <laughs> I don't think we got too much into TikTok today, but that's kind of, to my understanding, like Instagram, TikTok, like the visual parts of social media. It's like really flown there, and you have all these haul videos from like essentially compared to Jay and me, children who are talking about the clothes they've ordered. Um, and so it's, I think it's like the next step in the kind of forever 21 clothing economy. So that's all their marketing, right? Or like more or less is just through like sending stuff to Instagram and Pretty TikTok much, influencers. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they get so much buzz on there that then they'll send you like a $100 gift certificate because you've sold like a bajillion of their shirt. Oh, yeah. so people are like sort of doing pay for like it's, it's almost bit, like like uh, retroactive, but still. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, I mean, I, I don't know. That just seems like pretty smart. Like you don't have to buy a billboard or like a print ad or stuff that doesn't really matter. Yeah. If your actual market is like 15 year olds who have $29 to spend on clothes yeah. <laughs> that they're ordering. And that seems to be their market, right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah, fashion is something I know nothing about, but um, but I found this to be for that reason. I found this to be one of I don't know, I think it's the most informative guests we've had on Definitely. in a long time. Um, at least in terms of like things that I didn't know, and so I hope that you'll listen. Um, and uh, yeah, here is our conversation. This week, we're really excited to have Minha T. Pham, who is an associate professor in the graduate program in media studies at Pratt, which is really close to where I live. Um, Minha is somebody Jay and May and I really, whose work we really admire. She researches fashion labor under global capitalism and digital capitalism. 
Um, I read her first book a few years ago, Asians Wear Clothes on the Internet, Race, Gender, and the Work of Personal Style Blogging, which is a great title. It was a great um, title. <laughs> such a good title. Um, Asians Wear Clothes on the Internet was is sort of about ta- what, what Minha calls taste work, the taste work of Asian super bloggers like Susie Bubble and some others. And just last month, Minha ha- is out with a new book called Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Social Media's Influence on Fashion, Ethics, and Property. Welcome, Minha. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're so excited. Um, so Jay and I are not exactly the most fashionable people, and we haven't really talked about this um, any of this kind of stuff before, but we wanted to, we have talked a lot about social media and tech labor, which I think is like, like an obvious intersection with your work. Um, but just for like, I think the, to tee this up a little bit for folks, fast fashion has been in the news. It kind of comes and goes in the news, I think. But recently it's been in the news maybe a little bit more because of Shein or Shein or Shine, this Chinese fashion company that um, is sort of sensational on TikTok with Zoomers, very cheap, obviously raising a lot of kind of old concerns around ethics, environment, intellectual property. Um, so we want to get into that and we want to hear about your new book and kind of how you're seeing the politics of these conversations, especially during COVID. Yeah. Um, but Minho, do you want to say just like a little bit about yourself, like your background, like there's an immigration story in your family and kind of how you came to study this stuff? Sure. Um, again, thanks for having me. Um, I'm originally from California um, in the United States. I was born in Vietnam um, and came over as a refugee, like so many others in the mid-1970s. Um, you know, th- one of the questions that I ask myself is, how did a refugee end up writing about fashion, <laughs> right? Um, and that's, you know, and that's a question that I think I get a lot. Um, but many of the Vietnamese people who came to the United States in the mid-1970s were middle class. The, er, the first wave, right, were middle class and were very much part of a kind of, you know, polite society. Um, were very, my mom was very fashionable. Um, and so clothes had always been, the kind of conversations about clothes have always been part of my, my family and particularly my mom and my aunt. That's, that's always been their interest. Um, one of the interesting things is that because we were here as refugees and, you know, with very little money, uh, my mom ended up making a lot of her clothes. Mm-hmm. And so I actually learned how to think about clothes and the construction of clothes very critically from a very early age. Of course, I didn't really know that that's what was happening. But watching my mom kind of study a garment um, is something that I'll always remember, right? It's one of those core memories that you have. Um, I went to school in California, um, got my PhD at Berkeley in ethnic studies, and never really thought I could write about fashion or even, you know, garment work. Because even in um, the early to mid-2000s, when I graduated from Berkeley, fashion wasn't considered a serious topic, right? And uh, women doing um, work on fashion really... um, weren't taken seriously. Um, so it was only until after I, I really, I had, I was on the job market. I had a postdoc at um, NYU, which is the reason I moved from California to New York. And the job market looked terrible. It was ter- it, it was just getting bad. It's worse now. But I really just assumed that I wouldn't get a job as an academic. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I started to write about whatever the hell I wanted to write about, <laughs> right? Um, and my blog, um, which is co-authored with Mimi Nguyen, um, Threadbared, we, we yeah, started this great. blog 
which really was just a conversation between us. We didn't expect anyone to read it. Um, it was a research blog where we used fashion and beauty as lenses um, through which to think about race and gender and class and nationalism, et cetera. Um, and so we, we started this blog. And, and I have to say that the blog is how I learned how to write. Because one of the things that happens in grad school is that you try to write the way you think academics are supposed to write. And then, you know, and it ends up being pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and so writing um, without the pressure of, you know, assuming that I was never going to be an academic actually freed me up not only to kind of think about the things I wanted to think about, but also write the way I wanted to write. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, um, that was really not feeling like I wasn't going to get a job as an academic, I think is actually kind of the key to my success <laughs> like as an academic. Up by precarity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In a really weird way. I mean, there's a kind of freedom to kind of assuming that this is not the path for you. Right. And like whatever I wanted to do, I could I could do at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so Asians Wear Clothes on the Internet was my first book, but it had nothing to do with my dissertation. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about like the the Internet? And because <laughs> you you started doing this work and like at the time, obviously, that the Internet was like really, really getting going is kind of when you were leaving college and Asians in fashion, this is kind of like a very long story and a very complicated yeah. story. And there are so many different kinds of intervention points from garment workers to fashion designers, et cetera, copycatters. Um, but this kind of internet phenomenon, like why focus on that part of it, this, the personal style blogging for starters, and now what you're looking at with intellectual property? Yeah. Um, you know, because of Threadbared, I was online a lot and I'm just sort of naturally I, I'm just naturally on a lot of social media anyway. I'm, I'm interested anyway, right? But writing for Threadbare meant that I was online a lot. And I started to kind of come across these figures that were really interesting to me. Susie Bubble, Brian Boy, mm -hmm. these bloggers, um, these Asian, English-speaking Asian bloggers. Brian Boy is from the Philippines. Susie Bubble is from London. Um, and then there was a, a bunch of, you know, U.S.-based Asian bloggers as well. Um, but it was this really interesting moment where they were getting so much media attention. Um, Vogue was covering that, was featuring them, profiling them. Um, you know, of course, they were getting front row seats at these kind of elite fashion shows. Um, and to see these Asian faces, to see these Asian um, people kind of be part of an industry in which Asians have, have long been part of the fashion industry. Let's be clear, right? Um, most of fashion most of the world's clothing is made by an Asian person and, and most likely an Asian woman or Asian girl, right? And so Asian fashion workers were not a new thing. But at this moment around 2008 to 2000, you know, like 11, um, all of a sudden there was a different kind of Asian fashion worker. And that got me really interested, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, if I assume that it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden the top style bloggers are Asian and English speaking, then I was really curious about, well, what, what is it about the internet? Um, what is it about this kind of moment in the political economy? What is it about this moment um, under globalization, right? That, that kind of, what were the forces that um, made, allowed these people to be sitting in the front row of these kind of elite fashion shows while buyers for Saks, for example, were in the second or third row behind them, right? <laughs> like there's this really interesting so moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so, and 
so really thinking about like, do these new Asian fashion workers have anything to do with the older, you know, generation of Asian fashion workers? And the answer to that is yes and no, right? Um, they're connected because of the global supply chain, right? They're wearing the clothes that the Asian fashion, uh, you know, the Asian garment workers make, right? But yet they were always disavowing that relationship because it was valuable to them to be seen not as workers, but as creatives, right? And as people who were just kind of expressing their personal style. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so thinking about what labor looks like, what fashion labor looks like um, in the internet economy was really interesting to me. And also to think about the ways that race um, and particularly Asianness, right? And kind of ideas about Asians and labor how those ideas were shifting or evolving with the internet in this place that everybody was thinking um, was kind of a a democratic space, Mm -hmm. right? Because now these young Asian people were participating in an industry that had been historically exclusive and, um, you know, exclusionary. Yeah, that era of the internet was very interesting in terms of people sort of blowing up very quickly who were Asian, you know, like you yeah. had, uh, you had Kev Jumba on YouTube, who was like the number one YouTuber at that time. Um, there was like Ryan Higa, right. Um, yeah. and so you had these, like, I've always been fascinated by that. Those, those two in particular, because especially Kev Jumba, not just because, you know, it seems like there was like a period of his life where afterwards where he went through like some pretty intense times it seems like like he became a Hare Krishna for a while and then he wow. moved to Africa and then he I disappeared wow then he came back recently and said that what had happened was that he had been hit by a car and that like nobody knew about it and like I don't know it's it's all very strange but like uh yeah it was like it almost felt like there was a opening and I think one of the traditional narratives that's out there now this is also by the way not to compare myself to these people but you know this is also when I like I got my start in journalism because I was writing for the internet at this time you know and it was like I was like writing for tiny blogs and then suddenly I had like a contract with the New York Times magazine you know like within like two months or something and I was like what just happened (laughs) and so I think there's like this narrative out there that basically the internet was a democratizing place and that there was a lot of gatekeeping around Asian people being visible and that 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 this was somehow like unnatural you know that actually like the gatekeepers are wrong about this that people didn't really either mind or actually wanted to see Asian people in these spaces and that that is part of the reason why they blew up. But I don't know if that narrative is true. You know, it seems like a very convenient yeah. narrative, mm-hmm. at least, mm-hmm. you know, for me, you know, my yeah. own mythologizing. <laughs> or yeah. like, or even for, you know, like Kev Jumbo, because you watch some of his early videos, you're like, why is this so popular? You know, the guy is just talking about like what his teacher said at school. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and, um, and it can't just be like, you know, 13 year old girls in like Arcadia watching this, like billions <laughs> right. of views. Right, <laughs> like, right. unless they watch it 20,000 times each, like, it doesn't compute. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, you're like, what? Well, yeah, that, that period was super interesting. Um, and I, I actually didn't know that that was also a time when all these fashion bloggers are coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was exactly the question that I had. Um, why Asians? Why now? And there's a lot of answers um, that I came up with. Um, some of them were that new markets in China were opening up, right? China mostly, but also at other places in Asia. And so I think, you know, there was this moment where brands like The Gap 
department stores like Mervyn's, um, and then later on even Barney's, were closing down in the United States, right? Um, the U.S. was not was no longer kind of the epicenter of consumption in the same way that, you know, that it had been. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, we were seeing all these new, you know, Gap was closing in the United States, but they were opening up stores in China, for example, right? Brands like Prada were so eager to sell to, you know, new Chinese luxury consumers that they were making, and Prada wasn't the only one, but a right. lot of luxury brands were making collections specifically designed for Chinese taste yeah. or Asian taste. Oh. Mm-hmm. And my favorite story of that is that Prada decided that what Chinese people liked were sequins, right? <laughs> so they just threw a lot of sequins on, on their clothes. Um, Everything was bedazzled. Is that Everything true? was bedazzled, yes. <laughs> and so, right? And, so, and then there were things like, you know, um, shoes made specific, like designer shoes made specifically for quote-unquote Asian feet. <laughs> right, and so there's there was this whole kind of interest in how do how do we engage attract the Chinese but also the larger Asian market, particularly the emerging luxury consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, Asian bloggers, Asian English speaking bloggers, were kind of primed, right, to be the intermediaries, the cultural intermediaries. Um, what their tastes were, what they were interested in, and the fact that it was you know that they were volunteering this information in English made them very, very attractive. They also were very good on the internet, yeah. right? And so they had these huge followings. Susie Bubble had her, her blog posts were being read by more um, readers. Like its circulation was wider than, say, Vogue, Vogue's website, right? And so they had these huge followings. They had enormous influence online. Um, and they, they worked for free, right? <laughs> they were offering up this information for free. Um, eagerly, hap- enthusiastically, um, and so that's that's just one reason that the the you know the quote unquote Asian century, right? U.S. and European fashion brands were really really keen on figuring out how to attract this customer base that they had been ignoring for such a long time, right? That they hadn't paid attention to, and so these bloggers were there at a moment when when Asian taste mattered. Yeah. It seems like that was around the time, too. There were all these fashion, new kind of young Asian fashion designers or Asian American oh, right. or Asian diasporic fashion designers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I wonder if that has anything to do with it, too. Did they have a sense of what people in Asia wanted? You know, like, was that or was it kind of <laughs> like a, you know, if you ask me, like, what do people in Korea want, like to wear? I'd be like, I don't I'm All my clothes come from the sports basement, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> next, next, next Dave's, to Shattuck, Shattuck Avenue here in Berkeley, California. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, all my clothes are from sports. I mean, like I have no idea what you know, but I can imagine that somebody who runs like a uh, <laughs> yeah. fashion magazine or somebody who you know who has no idea if they're like who knows you know who speaks English who can tell yeah. tell us who. Yeah. What Korean people like they might they might ask me they might ask Tammy you know Tammy probably has a better idea than me but you know like was this like a was this like a good bet or not it was in the sense that they had huge followings right and so what would happen is like one of these bloggers one of the bigger bloggers whether Rumi Neely who is who is U.S. based um, or Susie Bubble when they would mention a brand or a um, a particular garment oftentimes that garment sold out. Mm. Right. And so you, and you could track my book does this. My first book does this. You can actually track um, when brands or when, you know, collections or garments um, sell like spikes in their sales 
following a post by one of these bloggers, right? And that was really important. Now it's, you know, they didn't, these bloggers never represented themselves as the spokespeople for the people of the Philippines or the people of Hong Kong or whatever, because they were personal (laughs) style bloggers. All they cared about was their personal style, right? But they, but they brought not only readers or new um, consumers, they, they brought sales and that's what ended up mattering and having, you know, and I think at the time having these kind of no, you know, ostensibly ordinary consumers sitting in the front row of, of these fashion shows made the brands look really good. It made them look hip because these were bloggers. And in yeah. 2008, nobody knew what that was, right? right? Or, you know, certainly not the fashion industry, but it also made them look democratic. Like they were opening up their yeah. doors and their brands to these, you know, young upstarts. Yeah, that is totally. that that is the story of that era, which is that almost every establishment media or um, big industry place that had to rely on some sort of attention economy <laughs> was basically saying, "What are, we got to do these bloggers, you know, like and then <laughs> and make them diverse. <laughs> no, it yeah. really was like that. It <laughs> yeah. was like I yeah. like I mean, I I work for a website at ESPN called Grantland. And at the beginning, that was the idea. It was like my boss's idea was to take a whole bunch of young internet people and put them in at ESPN and give totally. them a salary. And we were all just like, what is a salary? I look at my benefits sheet from Disney and I was like, what is happening? And they hand me this card where I could go to Disney world at any or Disneyland at any time that I wanted to. And I was just like, this is crazy. <laughs> you know? like, I, can't I think it was like, Dolce and Gabbana who installed quote unquote tweet decks at their shows. Right. And the bloggers had no idea what to do with them because they're like, we don't need to go to a tweet deck to tweet. Right. Like we do this on our phone. But but having them there, totally. Right. Right. Having these these like this basically it was a counter of desktops, right? Having them there made made the brand feel like it was, you know, part of this kind of new generation um, that had entered into the twenty first century, I guess. It's so interesting. That's great. Do you want to say a little bit about like why now you're looking at these other sets of questions in your new book? Because your new book is about kind of copycatting, which is another thing that like Asians are thought of as doing really well, right? Or being yeah, extremely yeah. guilty of like whatever yeah. the Chinese product salespeople on the streets and stuff. Um, but you're looking at it again in a kind of internet way around like crowd, what you call like crowdsourced intellectual property regulation. Um, do you want to just say briefly, like kind of what the argument of this new book is and, and you know, what kind of changed on the internet to bring you to this place? Yeah. Um, you know, so the kind of unifying thread from the first book to the second book is my interest in the way that fashion work has, is, continues to be casualized, right? And so what the bloggers did and what the what brands relied on them to do is do the kind of work that used to be done by professionals, right? Whether it's um, marketing, promotion, modeling, all of these things, right? Um, Kind of got outsourced to bloggers under the pretense of, you know, letting them in, um, caring about what ordinary consumers want, create creativity, you know, those things. And so what the new, the, my second book is interested in is this ongoing casualization of labor, right? And so here, the work that in-house um, attorneys would do, right? IP lawyers, et cetera, would do to kind of assess 
whether a design you know, had been um, copied or not, has also been kind of outsourced. And, and to be clear, um, social media users also volunteer this labor, right? Um, but that kind of policing of what counts as imitation or in innovation, creativity, criminality, right, has also now um, been outsourced to social media mm -hmm. users, right? And, and we all do it. So you're, you're talking about like somebody wants to show a photo of something that shows up in somebody's portfolio and then a photo of like something from somebody else's in the past and they'll say clearly this is a ripoff of so-and-so. Right. right. Or they'll go to, you know, a retailer and say, oh, you know, Forever 21, for example, is selling this sweater and it looks just like this other one that I saw in a magazine. And, and you know, um, people get whipped up, right? People get whipped up and they start promising to boycott certain brands and they promise to set, you know, only buy from this other brand. Um, but part of what they're doing isn't just assessing copyright, right? Because the truth is, is that fashion design um, isn't copyrightable yeah. for the most part. Um, and those kinds of claims are hard to prove. You right? want to give that example, sorry, just from the introduction of the book around Forever 21 and this company Granted, because it, it, that's quite clear. And then I think Jay has some thoughts on Forever 21 too. So, <laughs> so in, in this case, Granted, um, which is a Vancouver-based um, knitwear company, um, Granted, it went on Facebook and Instagram to accuse Forever 21 of ripping off its sweaters, mm -hmm. right? And when it did that, all of Granted's, um, you know, social media followers started um, sharing and liking and, you know, the story and the story went viral. Um, people promised to boycott Forever 21. People promised to buy the $500 sweater at Granted. The sweater, I think, at Forever 21 cost $40. Mm. Um, so all of this happened. And, and one of the things that was so interesting to me is that Granted actually said, the designer at Granted actually called on its social media users, right, to call out Forever 21. Mm. So there was no pretense of, you know, um, he wasn't just airing, like, some bad feelings. He was saying, like, I'm asking social media users to do something about this, Right. Um, and so Forever 21 ended up pulling after, after the news went viral, news media outlets picked up the story once it went viral online. Um, Forever 21 ended up pulling the sweaters, right, from their shelves. Um, now, a small minority um, of voices actually said, you know, those sweaters on, you know, that you're selling granted for $500 look an awful lot like this indigenous design, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, um, I remember all this, actually. Yeah, yeah. and so, and, and Granted said, well, what we're doing is an homage, right? <laughs> we're based in Vancouver. We're doing this homage to um, the Kawishan people, um, et cetera. And, people, and for the most part, social media users bought it, right? So they were very clearly like, well, there is such a thing as a cultural appreciation. This is not cultural appropriation. And the other thing is just theft, right? And so that kind of that event was really interesting for me because it did everything, mm -hmm. right? right. Um, it, it went into the whole cultural appreciation, cultural appropriation debate. Um, it was very quickly, I mean, the way in which Forever 21 was labeled a pirate, a knockoff brand, et cetera, was racialized in ways that, because of my background in Asian American studies, I think became very familiar to me, <laughs> right? They have no creativity. Oh, the culture is so oppressed. 
etc. And um, it's like made it, in China, right? It's and made in China, but in you know, yeah. Yeah. Also, it's like they knock like all they do is copy uh, North American yeah. things under so. the most oppressive conditions, as opposed to this expensive company. Right. Sort of. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah that's. that's I do remember this now. It's like I remember, <laughs> like I remember the I just the thing I remember the most is the oh actually this is cultural the native <laughs> the native design. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. And and there were a couple of, you know, on the Facebook page of um on Granted's Facebook page, some indigenous people were like, No, this is this is also theft, right? Um and but but they got drowned out. They got drowned mm-hmm. out. And in fact, there was a couple of um, comments that I was tracking that got deleted, that the, the user deleted because they just didn't want to deal with, you know, the blowback. So that kind of kind of peer pressure, that kind of social media outrage was really interesting to me. But yeah. not only because now social media users are doing this kind of crowdsourced IP regulation, but also because what they were really doing is defining the difference between what is, you know, creativity and what is um, criminal, right? What is imitation and what's innovation? And that for me was the much more interesting question because these um, concepts aren't, they're not objective, right? Um, even in, under, in legal discourse, they're not objective. Yeah. And so I was really curious to see how we were defining at this moment when again, e-commerce in Asia is on the rise, when the U.S. And, and Europe seems to be losing its kind of centrality in global fashion, I was kind of interested in seeing, you know, how do ideas of Asianness and labor, again, in this, in this case, kind of illicit labor, right, copycatting, um, how were they circulating? How were they coming together and, and um, to what kind of material effect and cultural effect? It's interesting, the cultural side of it, especially, I mean, there is, I think it's now pretty well established that there is like, a, the, in the pecking order of things, or if you sort of see a type of like, I don't know, like Walter Benjamin type of like, you know, like things recreating themselves everywhere, and then the aura kind of dissipating, right? Like the bottom level of it is always produced in Asia. And like, you see it with yeah. K-pop, right? Like some of the critiques of K-pop, some guy wrote some article recently about it. I forget what the guy's name is, but you know, he wrote it and he was basically just saying like, K-pop is like totally hollow and it's just a copy. And if oh. Koreans want to be serious about music, they should create their own music. That type of <laughs> argument is very normal. You know, it's like so it's familiar. very normal. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, I always want to say, well, what do you want them to do? Do you want them to like hit that gigantic drum and like dance around with those hats on? You know, like, like what is traditional? Like 200 years old ethnomusicology, right. you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damn, maybe you can be like, um, yeah, like, you know, like, should they play like, like, what, what do you want? Like, you want the Chinese to like play that? you know, one string fiddle that the old men play in the subway. Like, like, what's the, what's the version of authenticity that you want? Right. And then why is this innovation not seen as innovation, even with all the innovation that's very clearly extremely popular throughout the world, (laughs) that there is always this assessment by like sort of tastemaker types that like, oh, this is, this is just all like a flimsy copy and that is racialized in a lot of ways. And I, I agree that like when it came to fast fashion, you know, like that was absolutely happening quite a bit. Um, but, you know, not without like some good reason in terms of, you know, Forever 21 not being like a totally innocent company in any of this. Not being innocent. Um, and, you know, and Sheehan is kind of the, the 
it's Forever 21 now, right? Yeah, like, totally. Forever 21 was kind of the the favorite kind of whipping brand, right? The, the one that we hated the most 10 years ago. And now it's Shein. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting, right? Forever 21 is Korean American, it was, you know, um, and, and Shein is Chinese. Um, so I think it's interesting that we keep kind of choosing these Asian run brands to, to stand in as not just um, bad fashion, right? But these are kind of exceptionally bad brands, right? They're doing something exceptionally um, kind of beyond the pale, right? And that's really interesting um, because what I would say is that Forever 21 is not innocent, as you say, Jay. It's Shein is not a great brand. There's no way, right, that we can we can kind of celebrate these brands as being ethical brands, but they're actually not doing anything that other brands That's aren't different. doing, mm-hmm. right? So instead of thinking of them as exceptional, we need to start thinking of them as exemplary, right? This is exactly, they, they you know, maybe an extreme example in some ways, but not really, but they do what all fashion brands across the price point spectrum do, and arguably they do it better, right? <laughs> um, and so what are we, we're mad that they're doing it better, um, yeah, the, I think there's like a part of it where they're so successful. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, uh, the Forever 21 family, which is like, I have a little bit of exposure to this because I tried to write this investigative piece on them years ago. And then it just kept bubbling up and I could never get very close. But, you know, like this is like a church family, a Korean yeah. American church family. Yeah, with the and John I think they gave like the all their money the to the church or something, yeah. right, Tammy, or something like that. Yeah. But they like were billionaires very yeah. quickly. Um yeah. And there's this lore about them that, like, you know, the wife was the real, like, head of everything. And she was in this warehouse in Los Angeles. And she would, like, basically sit on this throne. And all these, like, people would come by with their, like, uh, the things that they had made and show it to her. And she'd, like, basically give a thumbs up or thumbs down. Oh, my God. It's It's like an incredibly oriental image, too. I love it. (laughs) Perfectly. But I do think that there was some truth to that, that she basically hand-selected everything you know in this sort of way and then they would have people manufactured in china you know and that um the speed with which that they're able to build this empire and the popularity of it i think you know feeds into some of it and that you know when people realize that this is not like some guy from the midwest who's like a good old businessman but this is like a crafty korean american family (laughs) which i don't know if you've met a lot of very very religious korean american families like crafty is not the first word that would come to my mind, you know, and just be like, wow, <laughs> like I'm always surprised, you know? but they, but they're able to build this empire. And I think some of it is like, I don't think jealousy is the right word, but it is like sort of people being taken aback that, by that this type of fortune, which, you know, even outside of the billions of dollars that this family made, it was more their central place in every single mall you know like it was yeah. the biggest store so in every yeah. mall yeah. you know like yeah. it was f- what four floors five floors yeah. sometimes and yeah. just like it was massive and then they you know they became more and more opulent and the prices yeah. are cheaper and cheaper and i don't know yeah. i think that people like are like how is this possible yeah i mean f- this is what fashion brands do right <laughs> they want to expand their market base they want to get a larger share of the market so these you know these brands are doing just that um it's also, you know, kind of ironic to me that people are now mad at, you know, brands like Shein for being so good at kind of pumping out fashion, right? Pumping out garments. 
for the last 30, 40 years, we've relied, the world has relied on Asia to make the world's clothes, right? So they have the infrastructure, they have the skill base. What did you think they were going to do with that, right? <laughs> um, of course, now they are primed to not only make the clothes, but also now design clothes, right? So there's a lot of, um, Shein's relies a lot on um, their producers, their suppliers are also designers, mm-hmm. right? So they, they found ways to streamline this process. That's, again, good business sense. I mean, you know, and anytime I start to talk like this, someone either subtweets me or accuses me directly of, you know, being an apologist for <laughs> fast fashion, apologist. right? And it's like, <laughs> let me just be very clear that none of it is good. None of it is good. Fashion's kind of logics, global fashion's logics is, is exploitative. There, there's just no way around it. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about Prada, Stella McCartney, or Shein and Forever 21, right? It's, it's all bad because it all wants the same things. High profits, which means lowering wages, yeah. right? Anywhere they can, right? So social media users are taking up a lot of work um, for free. Um, but also, you know, a company like Shein has put in place things like, you know, some of the things that they do, um, they ship directly to consumers from their distribution centers, right? So they don't send clothes to a regional distribution center and then, you know, send it out. They ship directly from their own distribution centers, which saves them time, but also money, right? Because now they're shipping smaller packages. I think it's eight, if packages um, are valued at under $800, there's no import duties, right? And so they're doing all these things that like actually lower their costs mm-hmm. for, for manufacturing and for distribution. They're getting it to consumers faster. Another thing that they do is they have a customized um, software that tracks when a garment does well or doesn't right. do well, right? And so they, um, you know, if, if they put out all these clothes, but they, they actually produce them in small batches, 100 or two you know, 100 to 200 garments. Um, and then they and see what happens. Run, right? Yeah. Right? So it's a just-in-time yeah. production right. model. Yeah. Um, but they see what happens. And if a, a garment isn't selling, the software automatically stops production on it. Mm-hmm. Right? And then if, it, if it's selling well, then the, the software orders more. Right? Yeah. And so in that way, again, it's streamlined. They don't have a lot of um, unsold inventory that they have to now find ways to store, um, you know, and which, which is costly. Um, but what that means actually is that they have less textile waste than we would think, hmm. right? Because they don't have a lot of unsold garments. Interesting. Um, yeah, our pal, um, our pal Vahini wrote a, a good fe- investigative feature on Shein for Wired in which she goes over some of this stuff. And yeah. one of the things I think that really struck me in that piece was Obviously, garment work, the garment industry as outsourced to Asia is really kind of key to the Asian developmental story in Southeast Asia and East Asia. Um, And it's made possible because of Western regulations and exemptions, essentially, like creating, you know, a market, creating an industry that can then be, you know, create things for import back here. And yet it's the West that is constantly kind of critiquing and demonizing that kind of production. Right. do you think, though, I mean, at the same time, I mean, we should be really clear that, I mean, Shein's model is, there's some really frightening thing, things about it, just intuitively, you know, when you kind of come at it, like, 
I think you're making a very good point that it is it is exemplary. It is illustrative of like larger trends. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you speak a little bit to this kind of gut reaction, which I think is a reasonable one, which is we shouldn't be buying T-shirts that cost three dollars, wearing them twice and throwing them away in this you know, age of like environmental apocalypse, like we should be more careful about our money. So, so how how would you respond to some of this, which I think is like a very reasonable reaction? It is reasonable. Um, It it feels like common sense. And I'm I'm kind of going slower here because this is, uh, I feel like so much of my um, work has been about myth busting, right? There's a lot of myths about um, what is, you know, ethical fashion, what, um, what, what the environmental impact of fashion is, right? Yeah. Um, so the kind of reaction to Shein and the, the, again, the way that the media has sort of um, targeted Shein in the way that they targeted Forever 21, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a decade before, um, to me is, I think, something that we need to just slow down on, right? Like, I think that we really need to, to consider what is common sense is sometimes not actually reality, right? And that's, that's kind of hard to say. And again, I, you know, I get subtweeted on this all the time. Um, so I'm already, I'm already looking forward to that. Um, but yes, you know, one of the figures that I saw is that um, Shein um, produces or creates, I don't know, something like, you know, a million new designs every year to other, like, you know, even other, um, fast fashion brands like H&M or Zara, which, which only has like, you know, tens of thousands or something like that, right? Yeah. So they're producing a lot more. But again, um, and now all of these companies are super cagey about, you know, everything from um, sales revenue to their actual, you know, the environmental impact yeah. of, their, of their production, right? So a lot of this is speculative. A lot of this is just guessing. Um, but they, they do produce a lot more designs. They do, you know, kind of, there's, there's a constant um, turnover on their product in a way that we don't see with Zara and H&M. And I think that's the reaction that people are having. That, that can't be good, uh-huh. right? But right. again, remember, they're only producing small batches at first, right? So even though they're producing a lot of different garments, they don't all get produced to the same volume. So we can't kind of scale up and say, well, that must mean that their textile waste is, is, is also, you know, 20 times that of Zara or H&M or, or a luxury brand, right? We just don't know that. You know, the question of like, it can't be right to, to have a t-shirt cost $3. Of course not. Um, fast fashion is accused of being disposable fashion. That's absolutely true. But again, fashion is meant to be disposed, right? Like even luxury fashion, there's not one luxury consumer, there's not one elite consumer who is, you know, buying that investment coat and holding on to, and never buying another coat for the rest of their life, right? Yeah. That just doesn't happen. If you have a $10,000 coat, you're definitely not wearing that for 10 years. Every no, season. you might even only wear it twice <laughs> yeah, because exactly. now you're, you live in a world where you don't want to be seen with that coat right. twice, right, right. Yeah. you know? And so- um, the idea that we're o- that only kind of budget consumers are are shopping constantly shopping makes no sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't track with reality. And and whether your you know whether your ten thousand dollar coat ends up in a landfill or your three dollar t shirt, it doesn't the, like the land doesn't care. You know what I mean? It's 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 all bad, right? 
Um, and so, you know, and I'm obviously being hyperbolic, like, yes, you can sure, sell yeah. your $10,000 coat to the real, real, or, you know, wherever. Um, and, and, and so the, the life cycle of the garment is longer than that. But a lot of the things that fast fashion gets accused of, we could say the same thing about luxury fashion, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that overconsumption happens across the price point spectrum, right? And clothes, fibers, whether it's cotton or polyester or, or bamboo or hemp or whatever, um, takes an inordinate amount of water to produce, yeah. right? And, you know, and th that's, again, that's true across the price point spectrum. Um, that said, the, the kind of idea that fashion is this, you know, terrible polluter and in, of the environment, um, the idea that it uses more water than other industries is, again, just a myth, right? There's no evidence to prove that mm. fashion is even one of the top five terrible industries um, environmentally, which doesn't mean that it's not terrible, right? <laughs> it just means that maybe, you know, things like the cattle industry or things like tourism, aviation, coal, you know, power plants are actually worse. And, and we, should, we should pay attention to that. And of course, fashion is very much kind of, you know, intertwined in all of those industries in some way, right? Transportation, um, is also a really bad polluter. Um, but, but, you know, again, it's this idea that fashion is somehow exceptional and that fast fashion is the real, is, mm -hmm. is to blame, right? Um, just doesn't track. I have a question, which is like, you know, um, I do think we should say like, you know, there's like a, I mean, in China for Xi'an, it seems like the, like we talked about before the labor, conditions are pretty bad, you know, like in Wahini's piece, she talks about a study that was done where, you know, workers work 14 hours a day. They have like two 90 minute breaks um, and they work seven days a week with one day off a month. Um, and they got like a zero out of 150 points on some rubric that was maintained yeah. by some nonprofit advocating for better labor and environmental practices. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like there's also this argument, right. That is like, well, that might be true, and we hope that they. I, I am not making this argument, nor do I think anyone here would make this <laughs> argument. But I'm just. I would like you to respond to it because I, I, I do. I don't agree with this, but like I understand where people are coming from, which is that you know, like it is bad to have expensive clothes that are priced up for all sorts of stupid reasons, you know, and that is also the story of fashion, right? Um, that having things that are affordable. You know, if we can fix the labor conditions, that fast fashion is probably a net good for humanity, right? That, um, and that this is an argument I've heard a lot mm -hmm. made, right? Um, not just in defenses of Forever 21 made by people I know who may or may not have, you know, manufactured clothes for them. Um, but... <laughs> That that was not, cryptic. Not That's me. interesting. Not me. You know, no, nobody in my family. But um, but you know that that in the end, like having a, I'm looking at the Shein website right now. And first of all, let me tell you, I feel like I'm about to have a seizure because like I do not understand. <laughs> like there's so many flashing things going on. It's really there's intense. so many choices. Yeah. I feel like you know, like when you go to like a Asian restaurant sometimes, and like the in a place there are not that many Asian restaurants, and they have like seven Asian <laughs> countries represented. On yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel right now. I'm just like, what am I supposed to pick? <laughs> um, 
you know, that there is like a argument that this is actually like a net good for the world that like more people should be able to participate in having like a, you know, a lot of different clothes that, that people, that this is actually democratizing for, yeah. for fashion. Because like, if you can put together an awesome outfit out of like five things from Shein, instead of like having to buy four things from Prada or whatever, that that's like actually cooler. Um, I don't know. How, how do you feel about this argument? Yeah, I get it. I get that, you know, everyone should, clothes can make us feel really good and looking good can make us feel really good and everyone should have access to that. But the real net good, right, is actually not consuming. Like that's actually the real net good (laughs) for the environment, for, you know, um, workers. And when I say that, you know, there's always someone who says, well, um, but without these sweatshops, these garment workers don't have jobs. And that to me is the most cynical argument, right? <laughs> is that they need this exploitation. Um, right. That we can only imagine, you know, investing in countries, um, creating, fa- you know, building factories, et cetera. Oh, the cement industry is also a huge polluter, a much bigger polluter than, than um, fashion. But that we can only invest in these countries or these countries can only develop, quote unquote, develop if they're working, you know, if they're being underpaid in these, in these factories, right? And so... The net good is just to actually not consume or to consume much, much less yeah. of fashion and, and many other kinds of things. But that is not something that becomes that's that argument is never part of um, the discourse about environmental fashion or sustainable fashion. Right. Um, there are so many fashion brands that purport to be sustainable, that purport to you know care about the environment. But you keep sending me, you know, emails telling me that I have this 15% off coupon or this 20% (laughs) off coupon or, or, you know, these must have items that I must have, you know, in my closet. Um, And that's, (laughs) you can't have both, right? You can't, you can't say that I'm a sustainable um, brand and still sell clothes, to be honest, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, and a lot of brands now are working on like circular kind of, you know, um, economies, right? So, yeah. buying back, buyback programs, et cetera, um, rental programs. Oh, yeah, Patagonia is doing that. Right. And that's a really hard model because, again, where are they shipping, how much are they using, um, you know, transportation services to ship are also, you know, huge pollutants, right? Totally. And and I think it's something like 1% of unsold or returned clothes um, actually gets recycled into new clothes. Right. A huge proportion of it actually just ends up in a land. I mean, goes to different you know, sites before it ends up in a landfill. Yeah. Um, and so it's the, we haven't figured out how to do the circular economy yet. And it, it's mm-hmm. sort of one of those like it makes you feel good because now you've donated or you've sold back somewhere. Um, but but again, the net result is that it there's a far greater chance it's going to end up in a landfill. Right. Um, or destroyed through processes of like burning product um, than it is to get recycled into something else, whether it's clothes or, or, you know, rags or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to observe that. I think like they're the processes of like greenwashing, you know, kind of like fake, this fake environmentalism is there's now a kind of an extension in fashion, which is like kind of pinkwashing around, oh, we're, we're friendly to like queer and gender non-conforming yeah. bodies, yeah. or we're yeah. friendly to the working class somehow by selling these really cheap things. And yeah. 
But I think as you observe, like what Shein does around that is not so different than what an elite company does. I'm seeing more brands now actually write. So, so online websites, for example, will now write whether a brand is an AAPI owned brand, a woman owned brand, um, a black owned brand, right? Yeah, it's like DoorDash. Whenever I open DoorDash, they're like, black No way, really? Yeah, yeah. AAPI owned. I'm like, oh, really? The Thai restaurant? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, thank God, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Oh, man, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Well, I feel very ethical because I only, you know, I... (laughs) Throw every all my cl- I give all my clothes away until I have about eight t-shirts, underwear, and four pairs of pants and two pairs of shorts and socks. That's it, you know. And that's and if I go I over it, I, I go straight to I, I I give it straight to Goodwill. I can't handle <laughs> having more than like eight things that I wear. And, um, you know, we're the thing is is we're all complicit, right? We're all complicit in the system in in one way or another. So the kind of moral the moral grandstanding, the self-righteousness about, well, I never shop at, you know, H&M, Zara, what, you know, one of these fast fashion brands. I only shop at, you know, this sustainable fashion brand in Brooklyn, right? <laughs> to me is really annoying because where do you think that <laughs> Brooklyn, those, you know, those, where do you think they get their stuff made, right? A lot of Brooklyn designers, a lot of New York City designers go to China, go to Vietnam to have their clothes made. Precisely because they're good. They're good at it, <laughs> you know, and they can do it at scale. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, I love, I love, clo- I, I love clothes. I'll, <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> I love clothes. I hate the fashion industry, but I love clothes. Um, we're all complicit. And, and so that's where I don't understand the kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the finger wagging that happens yeah. about only about certain Consumers. Now we have. There's plenty of data that shows that um, luxury brands also score very low environmentally. Score very low in terms of um, their labor conditions. Right. There is that information. I tweet about it um, regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't. There's never. You know, these kinds of news cycles about, for example, Stella McCartney or Louis Vuitton or you know any of these bigger brands. We just don't see it. They kind of they fly under the radar. And precisely because they fly under the radar, they're slower to make changes, right? Um, they're slow because they know that they're not going to get targeted. Um, she yeah. and I, you know, I was to prepare for this conversation. I was looking up um, she and, and I was surprised to find that they've actually committed to a lot of different environmental um, initiatives. They have partnerships now with different environmental NGOs, right? Um, and, and that's interesting. Now, all of it could be greenwashing, yeah. certainly. But the fact that they've had to, you know, I think something like they've committed $50 million to um, having a carbon zero, like, supply chain, I think is really, the fact that they had to say that, the fact that they had to publicly, you know, acknowledge that is, is interesting. We, have, we don't see that with other brands, right? And so in that way, this kind of um, public outrage does do something, you know, yeah. it does move the needle for that for that individual brand, but we know, right, that this is a structural problem, and so individualizing it only, you know, is a is a band. It kind of creates a band aid effect, right? Yeah, yeah, they should just like you know, one thing that would help, I think, with this is if they made children only wear spandex, <laughs> you know, because like 
I spend so all the clothes that we buy are for my kid, and she outgrows it immediately. Oh, I see. But I always, you know, the thing that she doesn't outgrow. Kids wear leggings a lot now, and so yeah. her leggings can kind, you know, because they stretch. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, maybe this would be a solution for them. They do have those like grow with your child like clothes I know, but now. they don't work. It's like a, yeah. those are what just like that? a, they're like the combination washer dryer, you know, where you're like, this is an amazing <laughs> idea that nobody has ever figured out because, and it doesn't work, you know, like that's kind of like, that's how I feel like the grow with your child clothes. What is like. it but though? It's I a real know. problem. The grow with You know, child. like pants that, that um, you can extend. Oh, okay. As they grow, for gotcha. example, right? And of course, the waistbands that have buttons in them so that you can tighten them inside or, you know. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah. They don't work. Yeah. But, but you know what we did? I don't know. I think parent networks have gotten pretty good about this, uh, at least in places like Berkeley, where um, everybody just gives their clothes to the next yeah. person having kids. I mean, That's I don't think, best, think we're about to have our second kid, and I don't think we're not going to buy a piece of clothing until. He's like two years old, I think, probably. But here's the thing about baby clothes. They're disgusting for the most part, right? <laughs> like even, I mean, Gross. like poop Wait, and food, mean, oh, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're just, they're, they're stained. It's Gross. disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> was, that's what I said to my wife. You know, I was like, I was like, I was like, we can buy some new clothes. And she's like, no. You know, and I was like, I was like, this is gross. Simon pooped all over that this. That is a seasoned you know? mother. Yeah. <laughs> And then you realize, well, my kid's going to poop yeah, on the exactly. That was so our point. Yeah. It's like, who it's cares? Clean, it's going right? to be gross. Yeah, we're, right. we'll put it through the wa- washer twice and it'll be fine. It's you know? fine. <laughs> uh, well, th- I, you know, we're at an hour now. So, you know, I think that's generally about where, where what we do. So I don't know. Thanks for yeah, being on. This you. is super interesting. A huge departure from what we usually do. And I learned like so much. Uh, and I... You know, I don't think I'm going to buy clothes from Shein, but um, but mostly just because their website is like makes no sense. Like, Gives you vertigo. You, we've yeah. aged out of using their website. I, think. I feel sick. Like, there's all this like it looks like a 1999 website. There's all this like flashing text and stuff. I mean, that's I how know. I felt walking into a Forever 21 store, actually, yeah. right? In the blaring music. Oh, God, the music. Definitely too, music is like, yeah. So, yeah. How did they Definitely come up with old. that? Like, it's like a Korean family, then they're just like, we're going to blast this, like, kind of, like, generic, like, you know, like, non-licensed symbol, like, house music all the time. And <laughs> totally. And, and my thing is, that, that, those, that music drove me out, right? But somehow, <laughs> their consumer base, yeah. like, it kept them there. Yeah. It was like being I in a club, know. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I don't That's know. It's I so bizarre to me. Forever doing, I don't know. I hope I one day write that story because, like, I, it's still there. And it basically, it's like, I am not the only person who has tried this. Now, Bloomberg no. had a reporter who actually uh, they, talked yeah. to the daughter. The daughter was at Princeton. So and the kids now are company. running it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Running yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. And, um, and she, like, kind of got close to getting but. That was the closest anyone's ever gotten. This is like but the white whale of Korean American reporting. Of like business reporting. <laughs> yeah. you know? Like there could be books and stuff about this that I think that people would buy, you know, yeah. but um I don't There's know. A good, there was a good profile in Pacific Standard, I think, that Christina oh, yeah. Moon wrote. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that, that was excellent. the other one. That's yeah. Right, yeah. There have been good ones. It's just nobody has talked to the really talked to oh, the yeah. family, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just because, you know, they're smart and they're by like, design. What is the yeah, totally. Point of yeah, talking why would they? To the press? <laughs> yeah. And if they ask me that honestly, I'd be like, don't talk to a reporter. Uh-huh. Yeah. Never talk to a reporter. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Forever like, 21 is they've closed a lot of yeah, so yeah, they're yeah, not, they're, you know, these are lean times for them. 
Yeah. 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 Maybe like, you know, you could use a little bit of publicity. Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. Go after Sheehan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we thought we were bad. Look at me. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. My angle is to say that Sheehan is worse than you, so we might as well go back to Forever 21. Right. Um, their their decline was mostly about rivalries. Their decline was more about like the decline of the mall, though. More yeah, than anything. totally. Yeah, I mean, and this is why Shein has also been so right. popular, right? Is that the, it's almost all e-commerce. Yeah, but I yeah. didn't know this. They don't actually they don't deliver within China, so like Chinese consumers can't actually buy Shein. Really? Yeah. So it's all international? It's oh, all international. Goodness. Well, that's why the, all their models on their website are white. You know, I just noticed this. I was like, Maybe they're like... saving their, their citizens. They're like, don't buy this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You yeah, guys yeah. now have money. Go get, you know, go get Prada. They're like, this isn't up to the standards of the Chinese. No. We have to send oh, it to not America. not anymore. Yeah. That is a trope within, like, people, you know, saying, like, the Chinese basically spare their own people from all the crap. <laughs> like, I, saw, I saw a 60 Minutes clip this morning to say, like, there's this guy who's, like, total, you know, whatever, like, grifter type. And he was saying, like, the Chinese version of TikTok for children only shows them educational videos, and uh, it's limited to 40 40 minutes a day. Wow. But here in the, but the version that they import across the world has no, no such regulations. That's like, because China <laughs> has those regulations. But also, you know, like, and his argument was like, this was the new opium that China is sending wow. all over the world, which wow. like, I was like, holy crap. Like, that's, wow. you know, were, that's yeah. amazing. I have like a high bar for Orientalism, but I was like, yeah. that's pretty. That's <laughs> yeah. Pretty <laughs> but like that is a whole thing so maybe she in is the next one they're like don't buy this you know okay well thanks for thanks Thank for coming you, on we really appreciate it Thank and you. um yeah, we awesome. will yeah please stop by again okay thanks a lot bye thank you for listening to our show if you'd like to support us and join our Discord community, um, it is $5 a month, and you can sign up either at goodbye.substack.com or you can sign up at patreon.com slash ttsgpod. There you can get access to some bonus episodes that we're going to be doing. But again, like I said before, the big draw is our Discord server where people talk about all sorts of things all day long, literally all day long. <laughs> like I, <laughs> All day, all night. <laughs> <laughs> It's like weird how much, you know, there's, and then we have meetups, right? Like that are wonderful. Like recently I met up with a lot of our listeners here in the Bay Area and we went to go to Wah Shoes book reading here in Berkeley. Oh, you and did? Yeah, yeah. It was Aww. awesome, actually. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the, I'll keep everyone anonymous here, but one of yeah. the listeners um, went and got all these like sort of, there's this thing in the Bay Area where some liquor stores will put the ingredients to a mixed oh drink in a plastic okay, bag, I Ziploc saw bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Wap posted Aww. it on his, Insta on his Instagram. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, we had dinner and, um, you know, I don't know. I always enjoy these things because I feel like, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see that community people has like sort of met one another. And like in a lot of these cities, like they're friends and they hang out with each other. And, um, so sweet. I don't know. I feel almost like uncomfortable about it sometimes because it's like this great. It's like, how, why? <laughs> we have one not coming in, up like, in Boston too. Yeah, not in like, why are you doing this? But almost like, wow, like, you know, like these people in this Discord are like, you know, like it's, they're really, they have these conversations. Anyway, we have yeah. people talk about it all the time. 
it's very like meaningful for me and Tammy, I think. It's the oh, reason why we keep doing this show. Um, and uh, if you like to talk about basketball, I think that there's about like 40 people, maybe more, talking about basketball at any time. Um, <laughs> you don't want to keep that going on. <laughs> if you like to talk about fashion, as Tammy said, there's stuff, uh, there's a fashion channel. If you like to talk about Korean drama, that is also stuff. And then, of course, there's politics, everything like that. Um, so that's $5 a month. Um, our show is produced by May Schatz. Uh, thank you, as always, to May. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, then you can reach us on Twitter at TTSGpod, or you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Okay, until next week, uh, I'll talk to you next week, Tammy. Bye.